Get ready to rumble. Chilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Jack Cashel, an independent writer and producer, executive editor, Ingram's Magazine, a contributor to World Net Daily, American Thinker, and many other fine forums, and author of the new book, Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. Jack Cashel, thanks for joining us on The Schilling Show Unleashed. Hey, Rob, uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You have such a, a fascinating backstory here, and I think I want to set the stage by talking a little bit about how and why the Cashels, your family, came to this country. You know, we came here like so many other families did and probably still coming here, uh, and that is to avoid, uh, in the Cashel case, to avoid starvation. Mm-hmm. That, uh, they left uh, Ireland during the midst of the potato famine, the darkest year of the potato famine, uh, Black 47, as they call it, 1847. And in that five-year period, Ireland lost 25% of its population. I mean, half of those uh, died, starvation, disease, another uh, uh, half of those uh, uh, exile uh, forever, never to go home. And the whole theme of exile is part of my book, the whole notion of diaspora. They came to the United States, which is wonderful. I mean, they could not have come to a better place. Yeah. I mean, I lived, you know, we've all lived such bountiful lives. We take it for granted, we shouldn't. My story that I tell in Untenable is the story of our own diaspora uh, from the neighborhoods we grew up in, not just mine, but I mean, literally millions of people across the eastern, northeastern, north central United States, even the West Coast, driven from their neighborhoods by forces beyond their control and with great heartbreak. And it's a story that's not been told before and uh, underappreciated. And I had the I had a ringside seat on it because I grew up in, in the midst of Newark, New Jersey, which was the, the poster child for urban dysfunction, watching a, a really wonderful neighborhood collapse around me so that by the time I was, you know, in graduate school, there was no home to go home to, literally. The neighborhood was shot and my home had been raised, you know, so all your friends are scattered. And in that era before social media, there's no way to keep up. You know, you can send letters to your boy, male friends, you know, do that. Phone calls, you need a purchase order to get a long distance call out of your mind, out of your parents. So it was, uh, you know, it, it's not a great tragedy compared to my, that of my great grandparents, but it's, it's a minor tragedy. And the real tragedy, the hard part of it is we were, we were shamed by the media for leaving. We became uh, white flight, you know, uh, uh, scaredy cats, racist, etc. And it's a, a stigma we didn't deserve, and it needs to be reversed. The term white flight, and I remember hearing this as a kid and growing up in Southern California, 
But uh, you start the book off with Michelle Obama's description, and this is pretty much encapsulating the way people have termed white flight as a pejorative term. So let's talk about how Michelle Obama and some of the other detractors have described white flight. Yeah, and you know, in 2019, when Michelle said this at a, one of his Obama Foundation forums, she was merely reflecting what she had been told and heard. And in her view, and it's a pretty nasty take, partly because, as I explained, her family was fleeing as well, but yeah. they were black, so they were not shamed for fleeing. She described it as, you know, as soon as respectable families like ours moved into a block, the whites packed up and, and fled. So disturbed were they by the color of our skin and the texture of our hair. Well, she knows better because her family fled at least two times uh, the kinds of things that we fled. And that is a, a breakdown in law and order and just a, a surge in crime and a, a collapse of schools. Her parents were good parents. They were as sensitive to those conditions as any, any parent was. And so they pulled uh, Michelle first from her neighborhood and her neighborhood school. And then they did it a second time when they sent her and her brother away from their neighborhood high school. She knows the phenomenon, but she's a politician and she's playing it for what it's worth. But she's saying what everyone else has been saying. And that whole anti-racist movement, the anti-racist in quotes. Yeah, these people are all racist. They're all bad. They were just afraid of black people. It was an irrational fear. Yeah, there's no, nothing other than racism that drove them or perhaps fear that their property values would decline. They, they write whole essays, as I point out in the book, in op-eds published in the New York Times about white flight without mentioning the two key words, which are crime and schools. This is so interesting, but I want to be explicit about the reason for this deception, because you mentioned that she knows better, and I agree with you, and as do all the others or many of the others making the same claims. What are they gaining from their depiction of this inaccurately, as you describe? You know, I think it's a... Uh, a political gain in which they do two things. One is they reinforce among uh, their liberal friends their sense of moral superiority. And secondly, uh, they reinforce among their black uh, constituents uh, contempt for white people, which just solidifies their attachment to the Democratic Party. And, you know, given that the Democratic Party is the party of, not only are they the party of slavery, the party that gave us the Civil War, the party that gave us Jim Crow, the party that gave us lynching, the party that gave us Woodrow Wilson, the, the greatest racist ever occupied the White House, the party that gave us Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whose administration invented redlining. It takes a lot of nerve, you know, to come around and, and, to, and to call your political enemies the racist in this political drama. But they've labored to do that because at one point, blacks were uh, Republican and leaning, strongly Republican leaning. Up until the uh, New Deal and certainly in the years after that with Lyndon Johnson. And it was a calculated strategy. And Johnson was uh, particularly wily about this, that if he could seduce the black vote through all kinds of social benefits, seeming benefits, he could have their uh, attachment forever for the next 200 years. And uh, there's a famous Johnson quote that is not said quite as discreetly as I said that. And he's been so far, you know, 60 years later, successful. There's a very interesting backstory to every group of ethnics who came to America, my own family. Most of them came through Ellis Island from Italy. 
and they had this promise of America that they were seeking. What was the promise of America? Because we're, we're out of touch today. But what did people think they were getting by coming here? They thought they were getting one thing, opportunity. They weren't expecting benefits or handouts. They weren't, you know, they knew that from their own relatives that the initial transition was going to be difficult. And it was, first of all, because, you know, they were, they'd have to adapt to a new country, in many cases to a new language, but also they would uh, meet resistance from the people who got there before they did. Every, I mean, from, you know, the English met resistance from the Dutch, I mean, in, in the 17th century. The Germans met resistance from the English. So this has been going on forever. You know, in my world, the Irish met resistance from the Germans who settled north before we did. Uh, and then the Italians met resistance from us. And then the Puerto Ricans met resistance from the, from the Italians, et cetera. I mean, it goes on. You know, I mean, it's still going on. Uh, you see this in cities like New York now where the, you know, for all their uh, alleged uh, multiracial harmony, they are not at all keen on, housing hundreds of thousands of newcomers, uh, especially ones who got here illegally. No, it's a natural part of the, of the process, but they did have that opportunity. In most cases, it took a couple of generations for them to realize it. You know, by uh, the time I, I came around, my generation came around, and I look at my friends and say, we all grew up in a working class neighborhood. Uh, virtually everyone lived in an apartment. Most of them were crowded. Uh, this is an urban life, no backyards. No garages, no pools, no none of that. And yet virtually everyone I grew up with today is a you know, middle-class homeowner. So there has been great material progress. It's just that I think we've lost some uh, communal values along the way. Jack, there was such gratitude amongst that generation for being in America. And I remember my own grandmother telling me, you know, whenever I complained as a kid, you need to go back to the old country. That seems to have been largely lost. Is there elements of that that still survive generationally, or is that just a nature's process that we forget? I think it's nature's process that, you know, the more, the further removed you are from the old country and from the, the factors that drove your parents or your grandparents, your great-grandparents to abandon everything they knew and, and risk a trip to the United States. And when they, during the potato famine, as many as 20% of the people were dying en route. Mm. The conditions were so bad. And then we can sometimes romanticize their, you know, we could visit Italy or we visit Ireland the way we visit Disney World. We've, we've lost touch with that, the horror of that experience. And why we have attributed to ourselves and we have attributed to our grandparents a privilege that they did not have. The only privilege they had was to get their foot in the door. Beyond that, life was a, a just an extraordinary ordeal for, for the first generations. Life was much tougher. We should talk about the elements of this because you describe it really well in the book, that uh, they had to deal with crime, illness and sickness, and also working at an early age, which was just pretty much expected to, to help out and take care of the family. Yeah, you know, and, and that was commonplace. Uh, my mother didn't go to high school. She went right to work at a grade school. My father went to a Votech high school, but couldn't play in a football game because he had to work on weekends. Mm. Uh, and then I tell the story, there's some interesting stories in there that, I, that remarkably just by happenstance happened in my neighborhood in Newark, in a neighborhood called Roseville. One of them is the Radium Girls. This, is a, this book was a bestseller. They made a movie out of it. It's about this uh, little factory that opens up in uh, just a few blocks from my house. 
this is in 1917 or so. This was before I was born, obviously. They offered these girls, uh, immigrant girls, uh, most of them, many of them German at that time or Irish. They offered them opportunity to do this like semi-glamorous work. All they had to do was to paint radium dials all day and with uh, paint dials on watch hands with radium and to moisten the brushes. They would just lick their lips mm-hmm. and they ended up multiple. I mean, I don't know how many the dozens of them ended up dying gruesome deaths from radiation poisoning that destroyed their uh, mouths and jaws and faces. Uh, but life was tough then. They didn't ask for reparations. They didn't ask for government grants. I mean, they did sue the company, and they won, but as well they should have. But, you know, Madame Curie died of radiation poisoning. There, there was a lot we didn't know and a lot we had to work through. And yet at the same time, they created, by the time I came around, in the 50s and 60s, these incredibly viable, pleasant, functioning, working-class neighborhoods that everyone loved. And this was the hard part. People wouldn't leave easily. They didn't want to leave. You know, when I asked one of my good friends, who was the last of my good buddies, to leave the block, and he left in the early 70s, and I said to him, and he's a Democrat, so he's arguing against interest here. And I said, well, okay, Artie, you, you know, you and your, grandma, your mother, your widowed mother were living there. Why did you leave? Because from, from Democrats, I have a very hard time getting an answer of why they left or what happened to the neighborhood. They're always evasive, always elusive. But he wasn't. He said, Jack, well, it had become untenable, which is the name of my book. I said, why? What do you mean by untenable? He goes, well, when your mother's mugged for the second time, that's untenable. When your home is invaded for the second time, that's untenable. When you take Artie's story by and multiply it by a million or so, you have the story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. A story that until my book, Untenable, has never been told from a white perspective. It's shocking. These people have never been talked to before. And I'm glad I got a hold of them, you know, while they're still around to tell their stories. You had your own incident, and one of them that you describe at a very early age, I think you were nine, where you were mugged for $3, but it was, it yeah. was quite an incident. Uh, that was a, actually a lot of money at the time, but this, yeah. was, this was not uncommon. No, it became normative. And our neighborhood, you know, ours is a rough and tumble neighborhood. It was, uh, you know, on my, I, I wasn't on the block in 1950, but that was the last year the censuses are accessible. And my one urban block, there were 363 people immigrants from 14 different countries. The critical variable is that there are 85 households on my block and 83 of them had a married male head of household. If I went to that block today, I'd be lucky to find three, three out of 85. As the neighborhood broke down, uh, there was an increasing level of crime and dysfunction. We've been used to, you know, there've been fights and bullies and all that kind of urban stuff, but, but robbing your neighbors that was almost unheard of. And so when I got mugged as a nine-year-old in, uh, in 1957, I think, I, it made the, the, the newspaper, right? Yeah. Uh, and the reason it made the newspaper is the human interest story. Is they, as my mother said, they, those bastards mugged the wrong kid. Well, they did because my father was a youth aid officer at the in Newark Police Department. And he worked three blocks away. And we came back and, and just threw a little bizarre little detective work. We, we busted the three lads, three youths who uh, mugged me. 
that became commonplace. So when I talked, uh, Rob, when I talked to my friends that I had grown up with, why they left, I, I kept getting the same story. Yeah, I got beat up one more one too many times. My parents got tired of watching me get mugged. Our home got invaded one too many times. Time, every story had to do, virtually every story had to do with some criminal incident. There was one incident too many. It had become untenable for them. And so they left one by one. And what had been a perfectly functional, harmonious, commercially solvent, congenial neighborhood in 1960 by uh, 1975 was finished. Dead, morbid, corpse. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues with our guest, Jack Cashel, in just a moment. Join the revolution. Online at shillingshow.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Shillingshowmedia.com will take your project from conception to completion. Shillingshowmedia.com is reasonably priced and highly professional. Need a website for your business? Visit shillingshowmedia.com. Need a video created or edited? Visit shillingshowmedia.com. Have a photography or graphic design project? Visit shillingshowmedia.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Visit shillingshowmedia.com. That's shillingshowmedia.com. Shilling Show Unleashed. The book is Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. Here on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast, the author is Jack Cashel. Really interesting story, kind of a vignette in the book. 1950s Newark and black upward mobility. The, the story kind of comparing and contrasting Sissy Houston, her family, versus right. uh, Mary Baraka. And this I found fascinating. I was fortunate in that, um, you know, there were a couple of very good accounts. The one, the reason why I was able to tell these stories is because they become celebrities. One was a woman named Sissy Houston, and she was the mother of, of uh, Whitney Houston. Sissy's parents came up in the first great wave of uh, Southern migration. They were the kind of families that came up in that generation. That is, they were hardworking, two-parent Christian families who, like the immigrants around them, uh, knew that to su- survive... They had to work. They had to work hard. And they were facing obstacles even beyond those that their Jewish or German or Irish or Italian neighbors faced. Because there was even there was certain institutional resistance to black families at that time. Less than people think, but nonetheless, there was resistance. And so Sissy Houston's father, Whitney's grandfather, took a job in a foundry, worked throughout the Depression, raised eight children, made sure they were clean and dressed, sent them to church. Sissy uh, is a, a backup singer, and she's doing okay. She marries a guy named John Houston, who grew up in my neighborhood. They're living in what she could describe as a cozy little village, you know, surrounded by their, you know, an integrated neighborhood, uh, mostly in her neighborhood, Jews and Germans. And then she goes, it became untenable. There was crime. There was, you know, violence. Then in 67 were the riots, and she said, John, we're out of here. We've got to leave. Well, and three years later, as soon as they could raise the grub stake, they moved to the suburbs, which is where Whitney grew up. Although Whitney and I were born in the same hospital, so I don't know what that yeah. means. But that story happened time after time in, in, in uh, black neighborhoods as well as white. Amiri Baraka, who became Newark's leading radical at the time, a leading rebel, was uh, 
Oh, I had the same parents just like that. Two parents working, hardworking, loving, Christian, right? He went astray somewhere. But it wasn't because of racism, institutional racism, anyhow. He went to an integrated high school, which he was in a minority. He got many college scholarship offers. This is in 1950, you know, before they even got into affirmative action. Went to end up going to Howard University, becomes a, a poet, a famous playwright, and then comes back to Newark to raise havoc uh, because he had picked up uh, leftist values when he was living in Greenwich Village. But they tell stories of having grown up in integrated, congenial, uh, working class Newark neighborhoods. And in Baraka's case, he's arguing against interest. But then he makes an interesting point, and it really was part of my motivation in writing this. I said, he says in the book, he goes, you know, I, uh, I wonder what are my white friends made of our experience together? Well, no one ever asked them. You know? <laughs> uh, so we don't know. Now we know, thanks to Untenable, but we didn't know. He, did, he didn't ask them. Because if he'd asked them and he found out about their lives and their experiences, uh, he might not have been quite the racist he proved to be. You have a section of the book where you talk about the Jews and, in particular, their virtues and vulnerabilities and why they ended up fleeing, even though they seemed like they really wanted to stay. Well, yeah, the Jews represented every, and that's part of the reason why I have the word ethnic in the title, mm. because uh, each ethnic group responded differently to the uh, pressures that were uh, brought to bear in, a, in mid-century urban cities. And, and I write about Newark, but I write about other cities as well. Because it's really about anyone who went through this experience in whatever city they lived in. The Jews, as an ethnic group, and I'm going to generalize here because you can, yeah. is they were simply economically and academically well advanced over all the other ethnic groups. Not because they got any special advantages. They arrived relatively late. They arrived roughly the same time as the Italians did. But they had a culture that was formulated in Europe under duress uh, that was entrepreneurial and they put a great stress on educational achievement. Uh, their vulnerability as a culture was that they were dependent on public education. And so they came to Newark and they marveled at how well the Protestant establishment that had preceded them had uh, the schools that they established, how good they were and how functional they were. And so they, they prospered in those schools. And, you know, Newark has produced a dozen uh, Jewish people you've heard of, the greatest uh, actually, chronicler of Newark is Philip Roth, probably America's best novelist the last 50 years. When the uh, blacks began to move into the neighborhood and attend their schools, Jews had such high standards, they couldn't deal with the disorder. And it comes with families who are unschooled and unprepared to go to their schools. And so for all their talk about welcoming black uh, families, which they did, they set up organizations and you know, nice liberal organizations where people were accommodated and uh, they were the first to leave out where they were gone so quick. Meanwhile, the Italians in the North End of Newark were the opposite. Uh, they were, you know, a lot of them went to Catholic schools, a lot of the girls especially, so they weren't that dependent on public schools. Those that did go to public schools expected less. They weren't expecting to go to Harvard. They were expecting to get a job as firemen. They weren't as quick to abandon public education. They hung on. And they were cohesive as an ethnic group, as Jews were, but they were tougher. And they just simply were a tougher culture. And they knew that, and Jews knew that, and the Irish knew that too. So they resisted. And so the Jews were called racist for leaving, 
and the Italians were called racist for staying and fighting. So there was no, there was no happy medium. I'd like to talk about busing, the intention of busing and the true impact, because there was this push to kind of racially balance the schools, but it didn't quite work out in the way they'd envisioned. No, it worked out just the opposite of the way they envisioned. It worked out the way human nature would have dictated it worked out. And curious, I tell the one story about busing in Denver because the uh, Supreme Court justice who wrote that decision grew up in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, William Brennan. And, and in, in Denver, it was a particularly uh, you know, tricky case because they had blacks, whites, and Hispanics, and they were trying to balance them all. But what parent wants to put a kid on a bus for 45 minutes and end up in some strange neighborhood among people you don't know? No one did. Not the black parents, not the white parents, not the Hispanic parents. They all fled, this, not all, but as many as could fled that school district. It was a disaster. And some uh, districts, and I don't get into in the book too much, like in Boston, where they had real violence over busing, because they were breaking up neighborhoods, they were breaking up neighborhood schools, and they were imperiling these kids. You know, I mean, can you imagine putting a six-year-old on a bus halfway across town in some strange neighborhood? I wouldn't do it. Uh, and a lot of parents felt that same way. And yet they were dependent on public education, so they resisted. Uh, it didn't work anywhere that I know of. Jack, you dedicate the book to your father. And in the book, you chronicle a very sad episode where your dad took his own life. Would you talk about your father? Because I know this is important to the story. Yeah, you know, I tell the story of my father partly because his uh, demise uh, sort of parallels that of the city. Uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, your classic person of his generation in many ways, the greatest generation. You know, he grows up fully in a depression. I mean, he had a Dickensian childhood. His father abandoned his home when he was a little boy. He lived with his cranky grandmother and mother. You know, had to work all the time. You know, he was married uh, at 19. My mother was 15. Uh, but he's a hard worker, very uh, mechanically inclined. Uh, you know, gets a job as a welder with the Edison Company. And now he has a wife and an apartment. And then World War II comes. He also had a fake baby, but that's part of the story. <laughs> yeah. uh, then he has a real baby. You know, they have a real son. Then my mother invents a fake baby. Get out of, my father had a draft that doesn't quite work. So he gets drafted, goes off to the Pacific, you know, for a couple of years, three years, I don't know. And uh, comes back, gets a job as a Newark cop. They save their money, take advantage of the GI Bill. Finally, they, my father has enough money to buy a home in the middle of a block. It's a ramshackle fixer-upper, 1880s but he's capable of fixing it up. And then he sets his you know, mind to doing that, to making a home for what now are four children. And then everything uh, goes awry. The, he gets a, in 1959, he gets a, a note from the highway department, we're gonna take your house. We're gonna just build a highway right through your neighborhood. We're taking your house, the house you've worked on for the last five years. And then my father has to make the decision, do I continue working on this house or that doesn't make any sense. Because they're just going to give me a flat fee anyhow. It's not going to be much. So that part of his life is lost. That part of his life is dedicated to home improvement, et cetera. Meanwhile, he's ascending the ranks of the police department. He becomes a detective first class, which means you get a pay raises. You, get the, you wear a suit. He walks to work at a precinct three blocks from our house. And then there's a political upheaval in which the Italians take over from the Irish. And even though my father voted for the Italian mayor, his captain, Murphy, was a politico. And so they, the Italian, uh, Anisio, totally corrupt mayor, and they came in and they fired all the, all the Irish cops. I mean, demoted them. 
So my father went from being a detective first class to working in the midnight to 8 a.m. shift in uniform. That's how, how badly they were treated. And so he lost all those pay grades as well. Meantime, my uh, ersatz grandfather dies in Florida. Uh, my totally, really cranky grandmother and her sister come to live with us in our home. You know, these are like women are out of like, uh, what, what's the matter with Baby Jane? Was that in the movie? <laughs> They're fighting all the time. My mother and father are reduced to sleeping on a fold-out couch in the living room. See, at that time, you brought your parents in. You didn't send them off to some retirement home. And so it became extremely stressful. And I, a culmination of things uh, led to my father's uh, suicide in the same year as JFK was killed. So it reflected, uh, in each case, the, the, the times that he lived in. Uh, had he lived in a different time or place, uh, that would not. I don't think that'll happen. Jack Cashill, if people would like to get a copy of Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities, or if they'd like to follow your many other efforts online, how can they do those things? Well, my uh, uh, website is cashill.com, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com. I do a podcast. It's called Upstream Podcast on YouTube. or just look like Upstream with Cashill and Edge uh, on other platforms. But uh, the book, I would recommend, as much as I don't like to get Amazon, make Amazon rich. That is the way publishers keep score today. So I just recommend they, they go to Amazon, go through, uh, uh, you know, just cash all untenable. And it's available in, uh, in both audio and uh, ebook as well as hardcover. And I do the audio. I do the read. I insist on doing the read since it's a personal story in many ways. Uh, I think they'll be, uh, they'll appreciate it. And Rob, I think I really appreciate your taking the, the time to talk to me today. Well, it's an important story, and I've got to say I've enjoyed reading your works because you're a great storyteller. Jack Cashel, thank you for joining us on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Hey, Rob, my pleasure. Anytime, sir. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.